0: At the beginning of the program, we mentioned that we'd have more to say about Robert Mueller and his report. No better time than now. The Economist notes that in 1998, the House of Representatives decided that lying to a grand jury and tampering with witnesses constituted impeachable offenses against Bill Clinton. Back in 1974, the House felt that obstructing federal investigation, abusing executive power, and ignoring subpoenas constituted impeachable offenses committed by Richard Nixon. And, of course, back in 1868, President Andrew Johnson was impeached for, among other things, bringing the presidency into contempt, ridicule, and disgrace, which is not a crime. Richard Nixon, who resigned rather than face impeachment, cynically but accurately said An impeachable offense is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives considers it to be at a given moment in history. The economist asked, where does the behavioral chronicle in Mueller report stand in the Johnson-Nixon-Clinton scale? They note that while the report does not conclude the president committed a crime, it does not exonerate him. Certainly, said the economist, the president engaged in conduct that a layman might consider obstructive. He fired James Comey, He tried to get Jeff Sessions, his former attorney general, to curtail Mr. Mueller's investigation. He repeatedly tried to compel subordinates to lie about matters under investigation. He told Don McGahn, the White House counsel, to sack Mr. Mueller twice. The president's effort to influence the investigations were mostly unsuccessful, Mueller wrote, but that was largely because the persons who surrounded the president declined to carry out orders to accede to his requests. The Economist said impeding a federal investigation and accepting help from a foreign adversary are precisely the sorts of offenses that the founding fathers would have considered impeachable. Trump's lawyers refused to let Mueller's team question him in person and in responding to written questions, Mueller notes the president said some version of I do not recall more than 30 times. Writing in NYMagazine.com Jonathan Chait said Trump not only tried to obstruct Mueller's investigation, it looks like he succeeded. All through the investigation, the president acted like a mob boss with the power to hand get out of jail free cards to his lieutenants. Trump's hatchet man, Roger Stone, who was in touch with a Russian cutout and WikiLeaks, still faces trial, refusing to cooperate with Mueller. So did Paul Manafort, who passed campaign polling data on Russian asset Konstantin Klimnik. For reasons we still don't know, Trump beat the rap, but Mueller found he was anything but innocent. Anyway, this story ain't gonna go away. And something else involving Russia that's uh, not gonna go anytime soon was the disaster that took place 38 years ago in Chernobyl. HBO has a new miniseries out about the incident and uh, quite a bit about the obfuscation and propaganda that surrounded the incident. It is pretty amazing to to look back and contemplate the fact that after this uh, reactor had blown up and experienced a meltdown, the Russians uh, did not start an evacuation of the nearby citizenry, which was getting irradiated uh, pretty badly. A little advertising blurb that HBO has put out about uh, their miniseries notes that Pripyat was evacuated 36 hours after the explosion. The first public acknowledgement of the crisis only came on the evening of April 28th and comprised a 22nd newscast mention, followed by a propaganda statement on western nuclear mistakes. Photos of the collapsed reactor were doctored to remove the plume of smoke billowing from the site and as I recall it were it was nuclear reactors in Sweden that picked up the radioactive cloud and knew something really bad had happened upwind. HBO notes, the conscious and continued dissemination of distorted information, especially when coupled with minimalization of unsavory facts and attacks on straw men, weren't a transgression limited to the USSR. It's a practice that's evident on today's internet. If anything, convincingly twisting reality is easier than ever. What was in the case of Chernobyl, a steady stream of propaganda from a monolithic source, is echoed and perhaps intensified by today's online flood of misinformation from numerous wellsprings. And although it's true that organized campaigns and automated bots play a significant role in spreading distortion, computer scientists, data analysts, and sociologists have pointed out that individual users very frequently disseminate misinformation as they perpetuate falsehoods by creating media, sharing with informed friend networks, and reposting unverified claims. Looking back at Chernobyl, HBO notes that today, 33 years later, misinformation remains just as powerful. And as researchers warn, the potential of the web to spread it is nearly infinite. So I guess as a companion piece to the miniseries, they also talk about uh, disinformation and misinformation. i have to check this out. Here's a very odd item. Writing the New York Times, a Veronica Greenwood said, there's now a scientific explanation for why people sometimes struggle to think on their feet in stuffy meetings or classrooms. Small rooms can build up heat and carbon dioxide from our breath. Several recent studies have found that indoor air may matter more than we have realized. Researchers discovered that a relatively normal amount of CO2 in a room can correlate to poor performance. Higher CO2 levels, say above 1,200 parts per million, often indicate a low ventilation rate, but levels around 5,000 parts per million are commonly found in school classrooms. Our improvements in sealing buildings to reduce energy waste have only made the problem worse. Wow, 5,000 parts per million? And there's now a report out that indicates that researchers at Exxon predicted in 1982 exactly how high global carbon emissions would be today. Measurements on May 3rd at the world's oldest measuring station, the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii, recorded humanity's first day with more than 415 parts per million. Weren't we just talking on the show a couple years back when they crossed the 400 parts per million mark? Well, they're at 415 now. The last time scientists believe it may have been this high was 2.5 to 5 million years ago during the Pliocene epoch when sea levels were 25 meters higher than today and global temperatures were warmer by 2 to 3 degrees. Anyway, apparently Inside Climate News, as part of a 25 investigation of what Exxon knew, got a hold of some internal 1982 documents from Exxon Research and Engineering Company about how the impact of fossil fuels on climate change would go, The company was modeling out the concentration of emissions several years into the future. According to a graph displaying the growth of atmospheric CO2 and average global temperature increase over time, the company expected that by 2020, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere would reach 400 to 420 parts per million. This month's measurement of 415 is right within the expected curve. It should be noted that not only did Exxon predict the rise in emissions, it also understood how severe the consequences would be. Despite this knowledge, the company chose not to change or adapt its business model. Instead, it chose to invest heavily in disinformation campaigns that promoted climate science denial, failing to disclose its knowledge that the majority of the world's fossil fuel reserves must remain untapped in order to avert catastrophic climate change. Michael Mann was one of the three scientists to first release what is now known as the famous hockey stick graph in 1999, says that uh, we're increasing by about three parts per million per year. If you do the math, we'll cross 450 parts per million in just over a decade. By the way, the actual graph of this study does indeed show a level of 450 uh, parts per million about the year, I don't know, 2035, at which point it predicts there'd be a 1.2 degrees Celsius rise in the Earth's temperature which is sadly probably going to turn out to be way too low. You know, it's a small thing, but I was also very disappointed to find out that Harrison Schmidt was a one-term senator from New Mexico. He was the last man to walk on the moon. He's also come to believe that climate change is not caused by humans. Sorry to realize that. What I'm really sorry is to realize that uh, no government is really taking meaningful action, it seems. I know that there have been these Paris Accords, but it it seems that most everybody is falling behind, with the possible exception of France, who bases its power on the nuclear industry. Even China is doing its best to uh, stop the rampant growth of coal-burning plants, which has been quite terrible for CO2 emissions, but they are trying to make a big effort to move into solar, for what it's worth. Then we have the United States to talk about. Apparently, for the first time in its 23-year history, a summit of the Arctic Council ended without a joint declaration because the U.S., I believe in Mike Pompeo in particular, objected to a statement that described climate change as a serious threat to the Arctic. The Council, made up of eight Arctic bordering countries and several indigenous groups, had a mission to cooperate on protecting the region's environment and resources. Most members used their speeches to warn of the dangers of melting permafrost and warming seas. But Mike Pompeo emphasized the upside of global warming, saying, steady reductions in the sea ice are opening up new passageways and new opportunities for trade. The Arctic, which holds 13% of the world's undiscovered reserves of oil, is a land of opportunity and abundance, he said. My God, we need an injection of some good news here. We'd all like to live the longest, healthiest lives possible, wouldn't we? Well, it turns out there are some places on Earth where a strikingly high percentage of the population lives to be 100 years of age. About 15 years ago, explorer and writer Dan Butner and his team at National Geographic pinpointed five such places. Loma Linda, California, the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, the island of Sardinia in Italy, Ikaria, Greece, and Okinawa, Japan. Residents of those areas, which Britner called Blue Zones, made it to their 100th birthday at 10 times the rate of the general population. After analyzing all the data, Britner and colleagues zeroed in on nine contributing factors to their longevity. They were, one, keeping physically active, two, maintaining a sense of purpose and drive, three, taking time to relax or play, four, avoiding overeating, and five, following a plant-based diet, six, drinking wine, seven, staying social, eight, having close family ties, and nine, largely subsisting on whole grains, greens, potatoes, nuts, and legumes. In these areas, they ate meat on average only five times a month. The wine consumption was moderate, one to two glasses per day. And by the way, if you're not that big a fan of wine, my understanding is it's two glasses of alcohol. It's the key, not not necessarily wine. The Week noted that for Blue Zone residents, being physically active meant leading lives in which they are almost always moving. They walked whenever they could, did yard work without motorized conveniences like lawn tractors. To the question, what about genetics? Genetics. The answer was it plays a role but not as much as you might think. Multiple family studies have shown that for most of us our genetic makeup probably accounts for only 20 to 30 percent of our longevity. In fact, research has shown that healthy lifestyle choices like diet, exercise, and social interactions can actually override genetic predispositions to certain conditions like heart disease or diabetes. Well, that's good general advice but wouldn't you rather just take a pill? Interesting parallel article in New Scientist magazine, April 27th edition, titled The Age of Living Younger. A piece by Graham Lawton noted that defeating aging has been a quixotic quest throughout history, but not anymore. To quote from the piece, Michael West got to talking to a guy next to him on an airplane. The man asked what I did and I told him, says West. The man seemed impressed and West continued thinking he had a friendly audience. But after a while he said, you're lying to me. I read everything, and I've never heard of any of this. This is so amazing and so revolutionary that if it was true, I would know about it already. The unbelievable story that West told his neighbor was about the science of aging, an account of how biologists had finally figured out what causes us to grow old and die, and and how biotechnologists like him were closing in on a cure, a cure for aging. West realized his life's work had an image problem, rejuvenation, age reversal. I completely believe it's possible, he said, but the gap between what scientists know and what even educated public knows is huge. Make no mistake, you're going to want to know about this. In a few weeks, an anti-aging pill will be launched. In a few years, the first scientifically validated anti-aging drugs could be on the market. Biotech companies are springing up to commercialize discoveries and investors are betting serious money on what many predict will become the biggest industry of all time. But noted Graham Lawton, before we go any further, let's address the bugbear that haunts this field. History is filled with charlatans and hype mongers who claim aging would be cured in their lifetimes or that immortality was in reach. This time it's really different. In the past decade, we've made major discoveries, said Richard Miller, a gerontologist at the University of Michigan. We have proven that you can slow the aging process using drugs. Ten years ago, people would have said that's a science fiction. There's no reason to suspect that can ever be done. Those people have been proven wrong. It's doable. This isn't just slowing aging in worms, flies, or even mice. It's in humans too. Peace quotes David Gems at University College London is saying it's completely different from the old stuff, which was a bunch of cowboys. Really awful. Unlike other biogerontologists, he has no commercial interest in anti-aging medications. But he says. These are proper scientists working in normal standards. At the moment, it looks great. Lawton notes in the piece that the goalposts have moved. Anti-aging research used to shoot for life extension, not anymore. Janet Lord at the University of Birmingham said, I don't think anyone wants to live to 200. What we do want is to stop the last years of life being lived in ill health. Yes, longevity research is no longer about living longer, says Linda Partridge, director of the Max Planck Institute for a biology of aging in germany the aim is to keep people healthier before they die it is sometimes called compressing morbidity to put it another way it's about extending health span the number of disease-free years toward the end of life that means keeping life expectancy the same which for children born in 2019 in developing countries is 85 but being healthy for 84 years rather than decrepit for the final 10 Article notes that giving people drugs to slow the aging process may well lead them to living longer, but that would merely be a happy byproduct. The treatment would be considered a failure if those additional years weren't lived in good health. The article notes that between 2000 and 2015, global life expectancy at birth rose by five years, but the number of healthy years rose only by 4.6 years. An average of 20% of life is now spent in a state called late-life morbidity, which is jargon way of describing a daily battle against an ever-growing burden of chronic diseases. That is terrible for individuals, but also for society. 80% of healthcare costs in the U.S. are associated with degenerative diseases. Anyway, the punchline here is that aging is due to our biology, and this biology can be targeted with medicines. But the article cautions, let's not jump the gun. Many in the field are extremely wary of making predictions about exactly when anti-aging drugs will appear and with good reason, they remember the last time. That last time was in the year 2013 when GlaxoSmithKline scuttled an anti-aging company it had bought just five years earlier for $700 million. Circus Pharmaceuticals was developing drugs based on a natural molecule called resveratrol. In experiments on yeast, it extended lifespans by up to 50%. Searcher's founder, David Sinclair of Harvard Medical School, once told Science that Reservatrol was as close to a miraculous molecule as you can find. It wasn't. By the way, notes the article, according to one scientist, 90% of experimental drugs that work in mice fail in people. But it turns out a lot of smart money currently is on a class of drugs called senolytics, which seek out and destroy worn-out cells that build up as we age. These cells have suffered some sort of irreversible damage and entered a state called senescence, where they hit the emergency stop, hunker down, and await destruction. This process probably evolved to stop cells from becoming cancerous, but it eventually backfires. Senescent cells are normally cleared out, but that goes wrong during aging, and they accumulate and cause tissue damage. The cells are like zombies, beyond repair, yet undead and causing havoc. They pump out a range of inflammatory proteins and are a major cause of inflammaging, which is a state of chronic inflammation we get as we get old. So using senolytics on senescent cells seems very promising. An article notes that uh, recently a lab tested some senolytics on a cage full of very old mice. They didn't miraculously rejuvenate, but their decrepitude eased. Of course, all this sounds very subjective, doesn't it? Because it is. But in theory, it seems possible that you may be able to take a senolytic drug and clear out the cellular trash inside you once every 6 to 12 months and be better off as a consequence. And another hot area in this research is an old anti-aging strategy, caloric restriction. Scientists stumbled upon a protein complex inside cells which they gave the handy name of M-T-O-R, acronym for Mechanistic Target of Rapamycin. They discovered this because rapamycin, a drug developed as an immunosuppressant for transplant patients, later turned out to extend lifespans in worms, flies, and mice. Biochemists discovered it was interacting with a protein complex in the cell, which they named mTOR, and set about working out what it did. What they discovered made biological sense. One of the most reliable ways to make an animal live longer is to starve it. Caloric restrictions and periodic fasting have been shown to extend both lifespan and the health span of every animal they've been foisted on, probably because they activate some of the protective pathways that are progressively blunted by aging. The motor system turned out to be a crucial hub in this system. It evolved for surviving starvation, said a researcher whose firm is developing drugs based on rapamycin. Its key function is nutrient sensing. If you eat, it is activated and tells the cell to grow and divide. If you don't eat, it switches off, which upregulates protective pathways. Those pathways include the process by which cells scavenge dysfunctional organelles and molecules for energy, sort of a garbage disposal system for cells. Well, it all sounds very good. We shall see what comes of this, and um, apparently we're going to see sooner than we think. All right, in the five minutes we have left, let's talk about some tech-related stuff. That's always good for either a laugh or a chill up your spine, as the case may be. I want to return to the piece we mentioned this program a while back, titled Eye Candy from The New Yorker, April 29th issue, which talked about two new books that are out making a case for putting down your phone. The article notes that last year, after a former employee of the political consulting firm Cambridge Analytica revealed that the firm had collected the data of millions of Facebook users and the hashtag DeleteFacebook trended on Twitter. Sean Parker, the first president of Facebook, has called the platform a social validation feedback loop built around exploiting the vulnerabilities in human psychology. Tristan Harris, who worked as a design ethicist at Google, has said that smartphones are engineered to be addictive. I do want to pause in the midst of this talk about Cambridge Analytica to note that the John Bolton article said that apparently Bolton bought a bunch of data from Cambridge Analytica and didn't think it was useful. Hard to say how much that information influenced the electorate in 2016, but um, no doubt it did some influencing Peace notes the U.S. government already regulates a number of addictive substances and plans are afoot to monitor social media companies more aggressively. Mark Warner, the Democratic senator from Virginia, has issued a series of proposals such as requiring platforms to identify foreign agents posing as Americans and allowing the federal government to set mandatory standards so that algorithms could be audited. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi commissioned Roe Khanna, the California representative whose district includes the headquarters of Apple and Google, to drop a 10-part Internet Bill of Rights, which addresses access and privacy and net neutrality. Senator Elizabeth Warren argues that Amazon, Facebook, and Google have become monopolies and need to be broken up, something I think Tim Wu would agree with her on, not to mention Radio Parallax. The article notes that legislators might succeed in granting citizens more control over the data that they generate by using the internet, but social media companies will presumably continue to treat their users like little countries that can be strip-mined to make other people rich. Anyway, writing in MIT Technology Review, Karen Howe notes that lawmakers are gearing up for some of the first efforts to regulate artificial intelligence. There are likely to be more to come. AI algorithms can now determine what content you see online, whether you get a loan, and even whether a convict is granted parole. Handing over decisions to AI can result in unexpected and troubling discrimination. So, a few weeks back, the Democrats introduced the Algorithmic Accountability Act in the House and Senate that would require big companies to audit their machine learning systems for bias and discrimination. Then again, Yashua Bengio, a Turing Award winner, has said that AI can amplify discrimination and biases such as gender or racial discrimination because those are present in the data that technology is trained on. The companies building AI systems don't have the incentive to fix this, so the dangers of abuse are real. In fact, companies that put limitations on AI to follow ethical guidelines would be disadvantaged with respect to companies that do not. So counting on the tech industry to regulate itself is like relying upon voluntary taxation. Anyway, there was some sound advice in that uh, article titled Eye Candy uh, about how to get away from your phone. At one point, they quoted comedian Bill Maher, who two years ago on HBO's Real Time said, checking your likes is the new smoking. Anyway, we're just about out of time. And let's close with one final item out of the Ozone. Turns out that one of actor Luke Perry's final wishes got honored last month when the actor was buried. He was placed inside a biodegradable suit made of mushrooms. His 18-year-old daughter, Sophia, explained the eco-friendly burial, saying, My dad discovered it and was more excited by this than I ever have seen him. Known for his TV roles in Beverly Hills 90210, Perry died at age 52 after suffering a stroke. He was buried in Tennessee, where he owns a farm. The suit's manufacturer claims mushrooms neutralize polluting toxins from the body as it decomposes. To which we say, well, yeah, maybe, I guess. And that really does do it for time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. Now, by the time we meet next week, let's see if you can put down that phone more often, eh?